you've got a Bible or a phone or something that has a Bible on it, I'd love you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. I wonder what you um, made of that commissioning as we commissioned Mike. I wonder what you... what was going through your head? I guess you probably sat there thinking, well, this is quite nice to sit and watch this. You know, good old Mike and Jemima, you know, remarkable. Mike seems to have got a job and, you know, those sorts of things. It's great. It's great. This all seems to be going well. I want to suggest that perhaps there was something more going on. And in particular, I want to suggest that actually every single time when we gather as a church family... We are all being commissioned by God. So actually, yeah, we came together to watch Mike say, yes, I'm going to do this and to be commissioned and to pray for the family. But the reality is that God wants to commission all of us. He wants to commission you this afternoon. We are being entrusted with work. That's what commissioning is, right? To be commissioned with something is to be entrusted with work, to be, have something committed to you to look after, to take care of. And so as we gather as a church, we hear God's desire for us as a church family, and then we're sent out to live for him. So although this afternoon you probably came... Um, thinking this was going to be Mike's commissioning, I wonder this afternoon, would you let it be your commissioning? The God of the universe has a work that only you can do, and he wants to commission you this afternoon and send you out to do that work. Now, of course, the danger is that to see a... We can see a commission from God as restrictive. It's going to stop me doing what perhaps I want to do. Something that limits our freedom. So here I am as an artist. Okay, just imagine for a second. (laughs) Just imagine I'm a painter, a brilliant painter. And I have this wonderful, exuberant freedom in my art. I I can do whatever I want. I can create whatever I want and I can splash paint and I can roll in the paint and I can make these artworks that sell for nothing but that you know there's this I can do what I want I'm free and then someone comes along and says Jonty we've noticed your artwork it's terrific and we want to commission you to paint a portrait of the queen for her hundredth birthday that's in five years time that gives me five years to work on this piece of art. You see, now my focus has changed. Now it's not about my freedom of expression, me doing whatever I want to do. Now it is about this commission that I've received, but it's a privilege. Now it's about me thinking about how I can serve and how I can produce a work of art that will best represent the Queen. That's what it means to be commissioned. To have a work entrusted into your hands. And you may say, but I prefer the rolling around in the paint freedom type world. Yes, but what if the commission that God has for you is the very commission you were created for? What if your greatest freedom is found in that which God made you for and that which God is sending you out to do? 
So I want to suggest this afternoon, as we look at these few verses, that you might find that here is true freedom. In this commission that God gives you. It is really easy to think that all of this kind of Christian stuff belongs to the professionals, right? It's for the people at the front. We have a formal commissioning service for Mike. But in reality, we could commission every single one of us this afternoon who knows Jesus. And that's a shift that I want us to try and embrace as we start this new term. That we'd see ourselves not as an audience who come to watch a show, but as people who come to be commissioned and sent. It's the difference, I guess, just to try and ram this illustration into your head. It's the difference between going to a supermarket to browse and going to a supermarket with a list that you've been sent to get. (laughs) You're sent with a commission. So why don't we pray? Let's ask that God would help us. Then we're going to read these words. And let's ask that we might even hear God this afternoon commission us with the greatest of all works. Heavenly Father, we praise you this afternoon that you are bothered about us, you're concerned for us, you're interested in us. And we pray this afternoon, great God of highest heaven, that we might hear your voice, that we might hear your commission. And that every single one of us, that Mike and Jemima and all of us in this room might know your commission of us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's one, um, just a few sentences from the Bible, which I think you'll see will have a number of commissions in them, a number of things that we're being told by God. Go do this. And I'm going to read 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11. It's only a few verses, but it's packed with things that God wants us to be about. So let's go from verse 7. This was written by a man called Peter. He was one of Jesus' disciples. And he said, The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind, so you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you receive to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. All right, let's get into this. Let's have a look and see what it says. Let's think, all right, what is it that God would send us out to do? Well, it starts with a perspective that we need to have. Verse 7 is a pretty blunt and startling statement. The end of all things is near. It's the sort of phrase, right? That, that sort of phrase. I don't know if you do this. It's the sort of phrase that in my head, I can sort of automatically relegate to the slightly lunatic fruitcake end of Christian world. Right? These are the sort of people who make crazy statements. They wear billboards that say, the end is nigh. <laughs> And it, and it just all feels a little bit weird. We go, well, yeah. Okay, let me tell you this. Peter is not a fruitcake. I think, I think when I get to heaven, Peter's going to thank me for that. I think he's going to be very grateful. What I mean is that Peter is not making some ridiculous 
conspiracy theory type statement. Instead, he is giving us a perspective that we need to listen to and we need to engage with. It's a startling little phrase because we live in a culture that is much more focused on the now than it is on the end. So the key to living a fulfilled life is to live in the moment, right? It's to live in the present, to enjoy every moment, to squeeze every drop of juicy goodness out of this moment that you're living in. It's all about today. And if you're having a bad day or a bad time, then you, you might be allowed to look to tomorrow, but certainly you're not allowed to look beyond that. Enjoy today. Hopefully it'll get better tomorrow, but don't, whatever you do, think about the end. In fact, the end is rarely spoken about. Because the end is a scary thought. No one wants to think about where this all ends. No one wants to think about where my life ends or where this world ends. No, 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 we don't think about that. We think about the now. But for Peter, as he writes his letter to some Christians who were scattered all over the place, who were facing all sorts of uncertainty and fear, Peter says to them, no, no, think about the end. The end of all things is near. And when we get a clearer view of the end, it actually clarifies what matters most now. So what does he mean by the end of all things? I mean, in many ways, you may say, well, I think I know what that is. That's not a difficult sentence. Those words are not long or difficult. But what Peter is telling us is that there is an end. There is a point to which this world is heading. Now, of course, there are different sorts of endings, right? There's the fizzle ending, right, where things just fizzle out. You know a sparkler? When you get a sparkler and you light it and you wave it around and it's so exciting and you, your parents are going, don't stab one another in the eyes! That sort of stuff, and then they say, don't pick it up after you, all that, that sparkler thing. Actually, a sparkler is great, it burns brightly, and you enjoy it, yeah, 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 and it's gone, fizzle. There's nothing about the end of a sparkler, which is wonderful. The end of a sparkler, but there are some things which have an ending that builds to the ending, and the ending is fantastic. The ending is the great climax, it's the whole point. So let me ask you this question. When you think about the end, do you think of a fizzle or a finale? Where do you think this world is heading? Because if all that lies ahead is a fizzle, then of course you live for now, because now is the sparkle. Now is the bit that shines brightest. Now is the bit that matters most. Now is the bit where the fun and the sparks and the enjoyment is, and then there's a fizzle. But what if the end that Peter talks about is not a fizzle but a finale? What if there's a point that this world is building towards? What if the end is the point? That's what Peter's saying. You see, in Peter's understanding of the world, the end is not something to be feared. The end is what everything is building to. You may say, well, how on earth do you know that? Well, because I've read the whole book. I mean, one Peter. I mean, I've read the whole Bible, and it's true there as well. Just come back two pages if you've got a Bible. This is what Peter thinks the end is. 
In chapter 1, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That's what the end is. The end is not a fizzling out to nothing. The end is the point at which you get the inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The end of all things is near, says Peter. And we make a massive mistake if we think the future is fizzle and that the now is the sparkle. No, no, now is fizzle compared to the sparkle that's to come. And here is this perspective that Peter desperately wants us to get. The end of all things. The moment when all things are put right. The moment when Jesus himself returns. The moment when this world is remade and renewed and made beautiful. That's what he's talking about. When all that is wrong with this world is finished with. And there is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. It will never fizzle. Only sparkle. Peter says, do you not see that's what's coming? But we do have to deal with this fact that he says it's near. Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. And he wrote it and said it's near. Now by most people's definition, near is not 2,000 years. You know, when I say to my kids, they say, you know, can I... You know, can I have some chocolate? And I say, yes, soon. I don't think they're thinking in the category of 2,000 years. Dad probably means in the next 2,000 years we'll get some chocolate. And it, that may be probably accurate. Now, in, by most definitions of near, 2,000 years doesn't quite cut it. But when Peter wrote it, what he's doing is he's saying, this is how I want you to live, with an understanding that the great finale of the world is coming. And according to the Bible, there are various points, moments in history. So you have the creation of the world when God makes all things. You have the fall when everything goes wrong and this world is broken and spoiled as human beings rebel against God. You have the promises of God and this great big long period of time in the Bible where God's promises, he's going to put it right, he's going to put it right. Then you get the decisive moment when Jesus comes into this world, he dies on a cross, he deals with sin and all that's spoiled, he rises from the dead, he ascends to heaven and the next thing that will happen is the end. We're living in what the Bible calls the last days. The time that is the next thing that happens is the end. And so Peter is writing to them saying, that's the next thing on God's agenda. It's the next thing on the plan. And he writes it like this to say there's an urgency. Wake up. Can you not see? This is what matters. And by the time he gets to 2 Peter chapter 3, because he's got another book to write, by the end of 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, some people are scoffing because Jesus hasn't come back yet. You see, some people have obviously got this. They'd said, um, hey, Peter, you said he was, it was near, but it's not near. See, he's not really coming, is he? And Jesus says, oh, you're so foolish. 
With God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Don't be surprised, it's been 2,000 years. In God's timing, that's still soon. And it's coming, and God has promised it, and we are supposed to live with that imminent, urgent, absolute idea that the climax of the story of the world is about to come. It will change everything. And before we can be commissioned, we need that switch to happen in our minds. So I wonder, how clear are you on that? How often do you think about the end? Not in a bleak sort of, oh, it's all going to go wrong. But in a joyful, it's coming, it's coming. We're nearly there. In just a few years. You know, within, what, 40 years, I'll be dead probably. And I'll be there. I'll see him. Maybe sooner than that. We're not messing around here. There's, a, there's an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. The end of all things is near. Anyway, sorry, I preached a whole sermon on that. We've got loads of stuff to do. That's the perspective we need. That eternal perspective. Mike, as you pastor in this church, you need to have that as your goal. That's what we need. We need to constantly be being pointed to the end, to the great hope that we have. And all of us need that. And when you've got that perspective, you're then commissioned to do three things. This isn't difficult. You've got to pray, you've got to love, and you've got to serve. That's it. According to these verses, pray, love, serve. So let's get past the first seven words and move on. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you can pray. Therefore, wake up. See what matters. This is the time of year when if you were still at school, you'd be getting your pencil case ready. There was... Did anyone else enjoy getting their pencil case ready? I really did. I think I really did. Go to Smith's. You go in, you get your protractor set. It's all there. But the pencil sharpener, right? You need a new, nice, sharp pencil sharpener. Metal one, not a plastic one. Nice, sharp pencil sharpener. And what Peter is saying is, sharpen up. You need a mind sharpener. That's not a nice image. But you need to get your mind sharpened. Be alert, be sober-minded, see what really is going on. We get so distracted and so confused about what really matters. We indulge ourselves in all sorts of things that distract us from the thing that really matters, which is the end of all things. It's really near. And so he says you've got to be waking up, you've got to be alert. Why? So that you can pray. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say, be alert and save mind so that you can do loads of work, so you can get on with it, so you can do that. He says, so you can pray. You see, we need to be a people who learn to pray. Why do we need to pray? Because the end of all things is near. Because that day is coming, that inheritance is coming, and therefore we've got to be alert, we've got to be ready for it. We need to pray. You see, I reckon probably that most of us experience the reality that when we try to pray, it feels pointless. It feels hard. We get distracted really easily. 
We find our minds wandering. You're not alone. Imagine, right? Imagine that Jesus himself was here. Okay? And imagine it was you and Jesus. And imagine Jesus took you to a garden, you and just a couple of mates, and said, listen, I want you to pray. I really want you to pray. And Jesus himself is looking you in the eye saying, I, I want you to pray. You reckon you'd pray then? <laughs> I think I find myself going, yeah, I think if Jesus told me to pray, I'd, I'd do that. Trouble is, if you know, <laughs> you know where this is going, probably. That's exactly what happened to three of Jesus' friends. He took Peter, James, and John. It was the night before he was going to die. It was hugely emotional. They went to a garden. Jesus looked them in the eye and said, please, would you pray? Jesus went to pray because he was about to face the cross and die. They fell asleep. Here is Jesus pouring out his heart to God. He had to pray. Why? Because he was alert. Because he knew that the end was coming. He knew what mattered. He knew that there was a battle to be faced. Jesus knew what mattered, so he prayed. He came back to his friends and they were asleep. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? He says, watch and pray. Wake up. Jesus goes off and he prays again. He prays so earnestly that he's sweating drops of blood. He's the son of God and he thought he needed to pray. He comes back and they're still sleeping. And he says to them, the flesh is willing but the spirit is weak. Pray. He does it a third time and they fail again. Guess who one of those guys was? <laughs> Peter who's now writing this letter, saying, my brothers and sisters, wake up and pray. I failed in the garden. I slept in the garden when I should have been praying and doing battle. The end is near. Pray. And the problem is we just don't see that we're in a battle. We don't see it. So if you just cast your eye over to chapter 5 and verse 8, you've got the same phrase, be alert and of sober mind. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The end of all things is coming. The end of all things is near. There's a battle going on. There's an enemy who wants to destroy. Wake up and pray. And we get distracted and we get deceived and we get sleepy and we fall asleep when we should be praying. So Mike, as you start out as a pastor in this church, I want to commission you and I want to call on you, be a man who prays. And let's help each other to do that as pastors of this church, to be men who pray. But I want to commission our whole church family, we've got to be a church that prays. Because the end of all things is near. This is not a game. And it may be that this is something you find really hard. Why not take some action? Right? This is this is mostly what this is what I do when I hear stuff like this. I go, oh yeah, yeah, he's right. I should pray. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm gonna do that. I'll do that tomorrow. And you don't. I don't. Here's what I suggest you do. If you really want to make some action, I, I, I want to suggest, first that you start by asking God to help you. Say, sorry, I'm sorry. Help me. And then you say to a friend, look, I'm rubbish at praying. Can, you ha can we 
help each other. And then try and help each other. Encourage each other. Send each other text messages. Encourage each other to pray. So we've got to wake up. We need our minds to be sharpened with that mind sharpener. So pray. Secondly, you've got to love. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I love this. If the end of all things is near, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you run around in a panic going, ah! It means you love each other. You pray and you love. And you love one another deeply. And this isn't the sort of love that is superficial and nice and we all smile at each other and go, oh yes, this is nice. This is the sort of love that is sin-covering love. Now, I want to be really careful, okay? I want you you to listen really carefully to this. Peter is not saying that love covers up sin. That is a very different thing. So covering up sin is about hiding it and pretending it doesn't exist, right? Covering up sin is what human beings always do when they feel ashamed. They try and cover it. They try and hide it. They try and bury it. They try and put it in a little box and label don't touch. They try and find something to cover it. That is covering it up. That's not dealing with sin. That's not exposing sin. That's not acting rightly. That's covering it up and pretending like it doesn't matter and putting on a smile, a fake, a a face that's not real. Peter doesn't say that love covers up sin. It says that love covers over sin. And when he uses that phrase, covers over sin, that's a huge Bible idea. That is what God does when he deals with our sin. You see, we have sinned against God. God doesn't shrug his shoulders and say, it doesn't matter. He says, it does matter and I will cover it. I will pay it. I will deal with it properly and absolutely. See, I fear that this is the sort of verse that could be used to excuse abuse within the church. There's been reports out constantly in recent days where things in a church have not been reported properly. That is not what Peter is talking about. That is not, we're not to say, oh no, no, but we love each other and we cover up each other's sin and if someone sins, we just pretend it hasn't happened and we cover it up because that's loving. That's not loving. That's not what Peter's talking about. True love covers sin. It deals with sin. Even if that means you've got to bring it out first before you can deal with it. And so we love each other in that sort of way that loves deeply. Why? Because the end is near. Listen to me, right? If you come to me and tell me that you've sinned and I say it doesn't matter, don't worry about it. Let's cover it up. Let's not tell anyone. Let's just ignore it. You see, the problem with that is that the end of all things is near. There's a day coming when Jesus will return and he will judge this world and those things that we've covered up will be exposed. No, the loving thing for me to do is to help you to deal with that, to bring it to Jesus for forgiveness and to repent and to put it right where it needs to be put right. That's what Peter's talking about. Because the end of all things is near. 
And so let's not settle for sickly, superficial love that smiles at one another and says, don't worry about your sin. No, do. Love deals with it. Jesus never once looked someone who was a sinner in the eye and said, don't worry about your sin, it doesn't matter. He looked them in the eye and said, your sin does matter. And I will deal with it completely. It's beautiful. And this love then is about offering hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's about overflowing that love to one another. It's about opening up our lives and our homes to one another. Why? Because the end of all things is near. And so Mike, as you take on this role in this church, you need to be a, you need to be a pastor who loves Loves in a way that opens your life and your home, opens your heart to us. And as we do that for one another. And then the third thing is that we serve. You pray because the end of all things is near. You love because the end of all things is near. And then verse 10, you serve. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Right, here's the deal. Each of you, that means all of you, that means every single one of you. If you're a you, that includes you. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve. The expectation is that every single part of God's church will have a gift that they've received from God and that they are to steward that gift. It is not a gift that has been given to them to use for their own advantage. It is a gift that has been given to them so that they might steward it and use it for others. And and I love the phrase... As we do that, we are faithful stewards of God's grace. How are you going to experience God's grace? Only through others. As God gifts them and then they steward that gift to overflow God's grace to you and to one, that's how we do it. Now gifts go wrong when we use them to become a platform to build our own reputation, to build our own name. Gifts go wrong when we use them to serve ourselves rather than to serve others. When we turn in on ourselves and where we think, are people impressed with me? Why why is no one noticing me? And it's all too easy to do. So verse 11 says, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. It's really important that when we're speaking, when we're teaching, we're not trying to impress. It isn't about whether you enjoy the sermons. It isn't about whether you've got great focus leaders who lead a funny Bible study. It isn't about that stuff. It is about, are we hearing God's word together? In many ways, you should see past the person who's doing the teaching to hear the true teacher, the, the, the God, the Lord. They're speaking the very words of God. And when you see someone serving, actually what you're seeing is God's strength. So when you see someone lifting more chairs than you can carry, 
You say, wow, God is strong. Look how much strength God has given you. I'm glad he's given it to you, not me, because you have to do all the chair carrying. But you see, it's about God. It's about God getting all the praise and all the glory. And so we serve for him. And whether people notice us or not doesn't matter. Whether people thank us or not doesn't matter. We should thank one another. But sometimes we're not very good at that. And it removes any sense of competition. It removes any sense of fighting or jockeying for position. Because all of us just go, I just want God to be praised. I just want his name to be honoured. You see, here's the deal, right? Um, how can I put this nicely? Let me talk about other, uh, another, another church as opposed to ours, just to get, help make this slightly easier. I was at a church before where there were two different preachers. And um, they took it in turns to preach. Some people much preferred one to the other, and others preferred the other. Uh, some people used to check how long each one's sermons was, and they'd have a comparison, and they'd come and they'd say, did you know David only preached for 27 minutes? That's short, isn't it? <laughs> and all of this sort of stuff can begin to happen. I want to tell you, genuinely, I would love it if Mike was, a, was raised up to be a better preacher than me. In fact, I'd love it if God raised up better preachers from this church than I am. That's, now, that's a challenge, because I say I'd love it. Actually, it's a little bit me that would find that hard. <laughs> but that's what we're talking about here, that God would raise up better, that people would go beyond us, that people would go above us, that people would do more than we've done, that there would be a freedom in celebrating what God has done. And when you see someone else and you find a little prick of jealousy coming, you go, no, the end of all things is near. Who gives a stuff whether he's better than I am? Who cares? The end of all things is near. There's a sparkling eternal inheritance for me. I'll get on and use the gift I've given to do the best I can. You get on and do the best you can with the gift you've given. And let's see what God does. All for his glory. Here's the commission. The end of all things is near. Therefore, love. No, pray. Love. Serve. And all of it so that God gets the glory. So would you let God commission you? Can you imagine what God might do through our local church? Or those of you who are visiting, would you go back to your local churches commissioned by God to live, to pray, to love, to serve in this coming year? Why don't we take a moment of quiet? Let's take a moment and ask God, God what would you have me do? How would you have me live in the light of the end of all things. Let's take a moment of quiet, then I'll lead some prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray, please, that you'd help us to wake up 
that you'd help us to see the times in which we live, help us to see that the glorious end of all things is near. And we pray that we invest our lives in that. We give ourselves to that. That we give ourselves to pray. Lord, you know that we're willing. Many of us are sitting here saying, yeah, I really want to pray, but Lord, we find it so hard. Lord, we pray for your Spirit's power to help us to pray and that we'd help each other in that. That you might teach us to pray. Lord, we pray that we'd love. Love with a deep love that covers sin, that deals with sin. Not excusing and covering it up, but bringing it out and dealing with it so it's gone. Opening our lives to one another and using whatever gifts you've given us to serve. To serve one another, to serve and to see your name glorified. Lord, we pray, please commission us. Let us see that this is what you're sending us out to do because the end of all things is near. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.